Hello and welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts Lewis Cleland and Clark Burrow. This week we're absolutely delighted to get another special guest onto the show. As always, if you see it on Instagram at A Wee Bit of Everything Podcast or Twitter at Burrow underscore Mr or Lewis 94 we would appreciate it if you could give us a like or a retweet as this helps us get the podcast out there so other people like your good selves can listen to it as well. So, Mr Burrow, on the podcast this week, could you do the honours of introducing our guest, please? Well, today on the podcast, we've got Owen Coyle Jr. He's the head coach of the England amputee football team. He was given the task of guiding the Brits at the European Championships in Istanbul in 2017, which, which we'll hear more about shortly. Owen is also a football agent, which he combines with his coaching duties with the, um, the amputee team. So we're going to hear a bit about his leadership journey as well. And... Um, we're looking forward to having him on to the wee bit of everything podcast. So we hope you enjoy it just as much as we will. Let's get going. Right, nice to meet you on. Um, welcome to a wee bit of everything. Um, we're delighted to have you on. We've been in touch through email, but it's, it's good to eventually, you know, have you on the podcast. So thanks for coming tonight. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, it's always good when we're talking about football. It's, it's good to get a wee break away from teaching and we're, we're talking about the football side of things, so <laughs> something we're, we're both passionate about. So, um, well, we'll dive right into it then. And uh, could you tell us and the listeners a little bit of uh, background information on your career to date? Yeah, most definitely. So, um, predominantly involved in football, which you kind of alluded to there. So, I work for the England Amputee Football team, National Team, where I'm the head coach. Um, and also run my own business where I look after uh, professional footballers and um, sports people as well as the football and coaches um, also. So um, a, a football agent of sorts, although I don't usually like using the word um, around agent with the connotation that comes with it uh, negatively, obviously. Uh, but yeah, but within football predominantly, either from a coaching front or an intermediary front. So what's it been like then in lockdown as kind of working with coaches and players? Has it been different for you or has it been? Yeah. It's been really tricky. I mean, when it first all kicked off back in March last year, uh, there was things around clauses, contracts, obviously a lot of things up in the air with football coming to a complete standstill across the UK, but globally as well. Uh, so in terms of the football industry, most industries I don't think were set up and ready for what the outcome of that was going to be and how it was going to affect the, the bigger picture. Uh, so between March through to probably June, July time, that was a real headache to get everything in place for, for, for the clients, but then also for the clubs as well and make sure that people are being fair because I think people are trying to use the situation to their advantage either way either the clubs or, or kind of players coaches or whatever else in between so once that uh, period was over with um, obviously there was clarity that the, the season was going to start um, as normal as it could have done behind closed doors which I think helped a lot of clubs kind of prepare um, so that initial period probably September was okay then through the back end of it, it's been quite tricky for your lower leagues as obviously we're experiencing now not only in Scotland but England as well that some of the, the lower domestic leagues have come to a, a complete stop for the season some have stopped and are looking to get back going again uh, which I know I think League 1 and League 2 in Scotland's talking about getting going quite soon hopefully again uh, which is great news uh, so yeah it's been challenging on that front and then with England Amity Football so Association and national team that's been a challenge because we're preparing for the European Championships in September uh, this year it was meant to be last September and they get postponed until 2021 uh, so we're preparing for that but obviously trying to do so within a lockdown is, is pretty tough when you can't actually get on the grass to coach the players and, and improve the players so having to be quite adaptable um, and creative in the way that we're doing that through analysis and obviously working with the players on, on a fitness level as well um, so it's quite a wide range of programmes that we're doing which We'll probably get to it later. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, so you spoke a bit about your your job as a head coach of the England amputee national uh, team. Uh, could you maybe tell us just a wee bit more about that role then? Just. Yeah, most definitely. So I got involved in the role when I was uh, back well, with the charity. Sorry, I was back in uh, 2014, it would have been. So I would just turned 16 at the time. Um, and it was actually the head coach of Halifax Town, who are a national league team down in England. Um, the head coach uh, of the, the team now, Peter Wilde, was our head coach. It was previously Great Britain and since we reformed to England. Um, it actually came about because once I got involved with the, with the Great Britain team, I went up to Scotland uh, with a few of my colleagues and set up the Scottish Championship 
Scottie Football Association, so the game could start to go and develop in Scotland, which is great, and that's now happening. Um, so that means we managed to split it off, and despite kind of being a little bit of a traitor in many ways, working for the for the English side of things, um, that's where I've been since 2014. So started off as a young coach, just learning my trade, getting to know players, getting to know the system. Um, fortunately, get took away in 2014 later that year to the World Cup, uh, which was in Mexico, just as a support coach. Again, just to gain experience and get a bit of a dog's body, if I'm being honest, and do a little bit of everything. Uh, great experience. And then in 2016, uh, late 2016, I got offered the role to become head coach. So I was 19 at the time, um, which was a phenomenal um, achievement for myself to get offered the national team role at such a young age. Uh, but it was something that, that I was really excited about. I um, was just had a lot to learn and still have a lot to learn as well um, across that. But it's been a, a tremendous experience uh, since my appointment as head coach will be to European Championships and the World Cup. We finished second at the European Championships um, and we finished sixth at the World Cup, which was pretty disappointing on both fronts, but, but the World Cup more so, uh, just because I felt we were better than, than our ranking where we finished up. Uh, but yeah, the role's completely voluntary, strangely enough. We're not supported by the National Football Association, so the FA don't support the team. Um, all our players need to fundraise their own monies. Um, the coaching staff and wider staffing team are all volunteers, but um, very, very experienced and, and very good at what they do. Um, so myself, I'm a, in the process of becoming a UEFA licensed uh, coach. Uh, very shortly, I'm, I'm going to get signed off on that. We'll get performance psychologists, we'll get physiotherapists, uh, we'll get media training videographers, professional photographers that come down that are part of our wider staffing team. So in terms of uh, the team, there's a real high level of expertise despite volunteers uh, and the players despite again raising their own monies not being paid to play not getting any expenses to travel and competing against some professional teams um, in Europe and, and worldwide so Turkey Poland Russia who are paid and train every day and are paid to do so uh, we're coming up against them and going toe to toe with them so when you kind of look at the bigger picture of what we're up against and, and what we put in place to counteract that and um, there's a real uh, a real kind of I suppose uh, a sense of achievement in doing so because it's everything that, that kind of goes against us the other way. But no, uh, that's a, a kind of quite a uh, whistle-stop tour of, of the team and, and the setup. What about the um, the, the Olympics then? Do you, will you guys go to the Olympics? Do you... So, yeah, so the Paralympics is not something we're involved in right now. Something that we're working towards for the future. Uh, the reason being, it's nothing really to do with Europe, if I'm being honest. Europe's mm -hmm. probably the strongest continent when it comes to amputee football. Um, and to put that in a little bit of perspective, when we got to the European Championship final in 2017, uh, we played in front of 42,000 fans of Rashid Tassis wow. in Turkey. So For amputee football, that's crazy. It's, it, was, it was remarkable because, I mean, the whole tournament and the build-up was done at the Turkish Football Federation's training centre, uh, which is where the national team trains. So it was state-of-the-art facilities, five-star, brilliant the whole way through. But it was enclosed. It was just the teams playing against each other, pretty much behind closed doors in, in many aspects. Um, and the wee stadium there that, that Turkey, when they played their games, they maybe get two or 3,000 fans coming to watch. It was all broadcast on national TV every game. So everybody took a real interest on it. We got to the final and it was anticipated to be played in that little stadium of two or 3,000 fans. And then they came, came to us 24 hours before asking if they can move it because of the, the interest in the sport and the fact that Turkey are a very proud nation, which I think anybody knowing football yeah. knows when you're the likes of Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, Besiktas, whoever it is, they create a, a real atmosphere, don't they? Um, so, yeah, within 24 hours, notice they, they moved the game to, uh, to the Vodafone Park where Besiktas playing. I mean, I'm, a, again, probably uh, interesting uh, to, to kind of know everybody's background, but I'm a Celtic fan, so particularly when it's European nights, whether it's Rangers or Celtic, the, the atmospheres at both clubs are, are huge. I've been at both Celtic and Rangers on European nights, um, but that atmosphere on that night particularly, um, and Besiktas was, was something that I've never experienced before. Um, the kind of passion, the, the enthusiasm from the fans, we get welcomed with the, with the usual flares and the banging on the bus. We get booed into the stadium, the national anthem, <laughs> the national anthem get booed. We get booed off the pitch. Every time we have the ball, we get whistled. So again, when you're thinking amputee football, if you put it in England or Scotland, you're lucky if... Ten people turned up to watch it with all due respect, whether whether over there because it's the national team that's something I'm very proud of. They, they get set on the line. What was the score? We, we were lost two one. We actually conceded in the last minute. Um, so we two two minutes from time we got an equaliser. Um, we're one 0 down in the first half. 
Um, and then in the second half, we, we scored a fantastic header from a set piece two minutes from time. And then in the last kick of the ball, they, they had a short corner, played it early, and uh, ended up in the back of the net. So even <laughs> it's something that, that we thought, you know, what was going to go away towards the back end of it. I must say, if we'd won that game, I don't know how we would have got out of the stadium alive. I genuinely mean that. Like That was the kind of sense of ferocity there was about the game um, and intimidation that they put there. But again, to kind of put that in perspective, Turkey have a multi-million pound programme um, within the league system, within the national team. And, and obviously, on that magnitude, they can get and attract that many fans to watch it. You put that to obviously where our guys are at and we train once a month as a team um, and the guys all hold down full-time jobs, they've got their own families and everything on top of that team and go toe-to-toe with them is, is remarkable. Um, mm. And it's actually saying we probably should have came out winners of that game is, is again, probably shows the level of preparation and professionalism the programme's got and, and how, how much the players have got more importantly in terms of ability. Wow, that's incredible. What was it? What was it? What was it like? Just talk us through, like, just the feeling of like forty-two thousand fans. Like, cause I know it. I was at, a, I think it was a Champions League game a few years back. Went down to Anfield. Um, me and my mates got a, we got a ticket, and it was like, I think it was, I was like, there's nobody, there's nobody any Champions League nights in the last few years. <laughs> 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 I'm missing something. I was like, you've been to Parkhead. <laughs> no, 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 no. But that's what I was saying. I was away down to Anfield, and the Besiktas like they packed out the the away end, and it was crazy. But just like, what was that like? Just as a young coach, just experiencing that for the first time, was it just was it were you, were you anxious, or what was it? How what was going through your, your mind when you found out you were going to be playing there? It was actually when, when we found out um, we were in the middle of a team meeting, um, and it was a, one of the, it wasn't UEFA president, but it was a UEFA representative that was at the tournament. Um, because that's the European body of amputee football, so obviously the close partner with UEFA. Um, so there was a European amputee football president, uh, there was a UEFA um, official, um, and then there was a general secretary as well. So what happened was we were doing a team meeting, and we were actually doing an analysis session preparing for Turkey. Now, the thing with amputee football is relentless. You play games back-to-back each day, so you go and get three, four days break. You might pretty much play a group game, the next day you'll have another group game, the next day you might have your final group game, you'll have a day's rest, and then you hit quarter-final, semi-final, final back-to-back without any any day's recovery. So it's, it's very intense. So that, that, that day we beat Spain 3-0 in the semi-final. Uh, which was a which great result and obviously absolutely buzzing. But you had to, straight away, we had to bring people back down here that actually, yeah, we're in the final, but we play tomorrow. So people need to set themselves down. Don't get too overawed by the experience and, and get back to work. Uh, so we've done that and we set the lads down, got them in analysis, call, we're talking. And all of a sudden, these three gents I've just described just walked into the room. Um, and I know there's different cultures and different ways, but, but I was absolutely seething. Uh, the fact that they just walked into their team meeting. So I pretty much uh, I took them out. I said, listen, get out, be out of the meeting. I said politely. Um, and, and I went outside with them and discussed it. The issue was the lads could hear what the discussion was happening outside. So they were asking my permission to move the game in front of that many fans. So I, I pretty much said, I said, I don't care whether it's in uh, Besiktas Stadium. I said, I don't care if we play outside. I said, I don't care if we play in the Turkish captain's back garden and you've got two Turkish referees officiating it. I said, I'm not bothered. I said, we're going to go in the final tomorrow. We'll be prepared and we'll be ready and we'll put ourselves about properly. I said, so if you just want to move it to wherever, I said, move it now. As much as it was an incredible experience, probably balance it off a little bit, it was massively giving them a huge advantage playing yeah. in front of that many fans. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, that again, where would go, surely you play in front of 42,000, you would. But ultimately, when you get an opportunity to win a major tournament and you get all that going against you within 24 hours' notice, it's quite... Um, it's quite a big decision so I kind of made that point I said listen we'll play wherever whenever just tell us when we're ready make sure our pre-match meal's done so many hours before and make sure we'll get the relevant transport and it's an easy trip for the lads and we'll go and do it so I went back in and it was like I seen it at a Braveheart and um, you'd all the lads with a crutches standing on the chairs giving it, giving it the biggest <laughs> Um, so, so from that point onwards, um, it was pretty much quite a, an incredible 24 hours because from there it was a case of, right, this is happening. Um, Turkey, the national team, not the amputee team, the national team, get knocked out of, I think it was the European Championships qualifiers, literally the week before. Um, and I don't know if you recall it, it was something that was kind of made more of a thing in their press. But Arda Turan, who was at Barcelona at the time, I left Madrid, one or the other, came off smiling. When it beat. Now, the sense of the nation was absolutely seething that somebody representing their country has come off smiling in defeat and that, that passionate um, about their country. So the country was almost, they were saying they were hurting about it and they were really disappointed and very kind of 
and had a bit of um, a bit all over the place because of that situation which occurred. So our translator, who's Turkish, said, "Oh, and I do think they're going to come out and support the team tomorrow because they want to celebrate a successful national team, particularly what's after what's happened in the last week with the with the, with the mainstream national team." So I said, "Right, okay." We went back to the hotel on all the national TV stations. It had just a, a kind of bar across the bottom of the screen saying, "Turkish amputee team made it to the final. Uh, free admission to come, uh, to come and watch the games tomorrow. It's going to be broadcasted." Blah blah blah. Um, and then the day of the game, we pretty much get, get told that there was going to be quite a, a large crowd there. So they shut all the streets off in Istanbul. We were headed to the game. It's a bit of a blur, if I'm being honest, how I felt before. I was just I was nervous for the final, but I don't think it was because in front of fans and then like, I just wanted to, to kind of get over that final uh, final hurdle that nobody anticipated us in doing um, and then when we got to the ground and seen all the fans an hour before kick-off I think there was 10,000 in the stadium um, which you wouldn't even get an hour before kick-off at a, a, a mainstream professional match there's not that many fans in the ground so um, what I got our assistant coach to do I stayed in the changing room and I got him to take the players out and get warmed up in front of the 10,000 fans so it was a collect, collect the ball with the drums and all the rest of it. Um, and they get booed the whole warm-up. They get things thrown at them. They get abused for the best part of half an hour, which it goes, well, that's pretty brutal to put the players in that situation. But what we wanted them to do is before kick-off, shock them to say, actually, this is just a flavour of what you're going to experience in the next 50 minutes. So you better be ready for it. So they went and done that. We came back in and, and obviously we went out there and we performed. And even to this day, although we lost, and again, in circumstances, there's no way we should have even competed on that pitch against them with everything mm. that they went up against. So it was a, it was a surreal experience. There was no other real way to describe it. There was a video I've got my phone um, that one of our media staff took to the lads singing the national anthem. Um, and obviously they're getting booed and they're getting jeered and it's getting whistled out. Um, but you can tell the passion I've got in their face to try to make the 42,000 fans hear them is quite, is quite remarkable. So, uh, so no, it was a fantastic experience and something that'll probably never happen again. Well, ho- hopefully you get to the final again in 2017. Eh, sorry, not in 2017, in September. Yeah, thank you. Um, hopefully. Um, no, I can tell you're passionate about what you're doing, Owen. Um, it comes across very clearly. Um, I'm sure you've had a lot of highlights over the course of your career. I mean, what you've achieved uh, so young, um, you're doing your A-licence as well. You're, um, some great achievements you've spoke about. Could you maybe pick one highlight of your coaching career so far and share it with us? Um, it's a great question. I mean, 2017, that final would certainly be, be up there. Um, it was one of the, one of the top experiences. Um, there's loads of little things um, from young players. So there was a player um, from 2014 when I started my journey with the England team uh, that was that was 10 years old. Um, and I started to develop the junior programme and he now stands alongside on the national team at 16 um, as one of our younger players. So that just that individual experience actually uh, supporting my young player through that pathway and giving them that opportunity to then see them in six years' time be standing alongside you as a, as a mature young man. Um, oh, is again something that's quite uh, unique and probably not your, your standard answer that people would expect but but that and the relationships I've built with players and staff alike is, is pretty special um, we, we defeated Mexico in 2018 at the World Cup it was again the World Cup in 2018 was also Mexico as was 2014 uh, we defeated them in front of about 10,000 fans it wasn't as probably as intense um, or as, as kind of allowed but again it was a really special experience to meet the hosts again in the, in the backyard when everything was up against you um, 2017 prior to the Euros there's a competition called the Amp Football Cup that runs every year and now outside of the World Cup and the European Championships this is the biggest invitational tournament that happens every year from teams across the world come to it it's always held in Poland uh, Poland are one of the kind of large forces of the sport as well um, and the year before I was there as an assistant coach um, and we get drummed 5-1 in the semi-final of that tournament against Poland uh, with a lot of aging players that left the squad thereafter um, and it was a whole rebuilding process for myself and, and the wider staff and team when I came in in 2017 uh, so from that point onwards we worked obviously ahead of the Euros but that competition we then went back to the following year and revisited um, and we actually went on to win it and we beat Poland 1-0 in the final so to see that 12 months development from getting getting beat comfortably and looking like the team was regressing to then within a year pretty much turning it around and, and going facing them up again um, and, and beating them 1-0 and, and I must say comfortably were excellent um, was, was again quite a, a good experience 2017 at Euros we beat Russia 1-0 in the group stage for the first time in 30 years 
Uh, so Russia, again, a powerhouse in the sport. Uh, we hadn't had a win over them in 30 years. Um, and at the time, they were world champions. Uh, so we get drawn as the kind of second uh, place team in the group. Uh, so everybody anticipating for us to, to qualify in second place and we beat them 1-0 in the, in the group stage. So again, probably some of the, the kind of biggest and best wins that we've had along the way. Um, but yeah, there's, there's loads of little experiences that probably most people wouldn't say uh, would add up to much. But again, once you get in that position, it's quite, quite special. Yeah, you spoke a lot. Of, you spoke there about the kind of individual coaching that you were doing. A big part of your job as PE teachers as well is, is to try and get around every pupil, each lesson, and work with them on an individual level, but also as a collective. How how much honesty you put on that individual coaching um, and getting around each player, or, or how much how do you balance that between the, the individual and the group? Yeah, so I mean, the individual coaching is massive in terms of input and how you can shape and develop. Uh, not only, I think it's really relevant to PE, it's relevant to football, it's relevant to any industry that you're working with with young personnel, is that you're actually shaping them as, as a human being. Um, and within the last three years, we've put in values and a vision in place because uh, with all due respect, in one, two, five, ten years' time, whenever it may be, I'm not going to be involved in that programme. Um, I'll, I'll have other things, I'm sure, that will come up and, and I may push a different direction. Uh, there'll be other staff in that programme that will do the same and, and that's reality. Uh, but what that actually leaves is, is a real clear plan for them to follow. Um, and you know what, in, in 10 years' time, if that team becomes the most successful team in the globe, and that's a bigger achievement for me than potentially winning the Euros this year because we'll know we've implemented uh, processes for individuals to follow to become good people. Um, and actually then in turn good footballers. So we do a lot on the individual level. We set a lot of smart targets for the players um, and, and goal setting for them where we work with them again, whether it's through analysis, whether it's through uh, fitness results to, to measure those targets, to see how they're getting on and progressing. Uh, so each player within our squad has the smart targets and then we've got wider unit-based unit and team-based targets that we obviously look to achieve as well. But everything we do um, is, is based around sports performance psychology, if I'm being honest. That's, that's a big part of our program that we, we believe in and, and believe that sport generally probably should be going and I think football within the mainstream professional games probably a little bit behind on that front as well when you look at some of the other sports um, so we, we do shape a large part around that and um, again the values of, of the team are imperative to that and the individual coaching within it is, is vital. It actually sounds as if we've, we've practiced that, Lewis. That was like the natural yeah. 5P. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's, that's, what we, that's, what we, that's what we go through, the, the smart targets and then the, the gathering data and all that through the fitness tests and the, the skills oh, observations yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, what, that's, what I, that's exactly what I was thinking, Clark. <laughs> it just shows you how like in other industries um, are doing the same sort of things as what we're teaching the kids. So it's good to connect those dots. So and thanks for sharing, sharing that with us there. Pleasure. Right on then, so from your experience in coaching so far, what kind of are the main qualities that you feel have brought you success or helped you overcome your most challenging circumstances, if you like, and why do you think these qualities have helped you so much? I think the big, biggest thing which wouldn't be uh, potentially, a, well, I suppose it links into equality, is, is around my support network that I've got around me. Um, right. So in terms of the staffing team that I've got around me, and not only players, but we've got uh, player leadership teams in place as well that, that I lean on and work with with some of your more experienced players that have been around uh, the, the sport for a long time um, and ultimately understand what it feels like to be a player in, in that team. Uh, so that, that support network it probably links to a little bit of self-awareness um, and being aware of, of actually areas that I can maybe have a, as much of an impact on as I want, whether it's a lack of skill or a lack of um, knowledge within that area. So I think any successful athlete, any successful coach appreciates that they can't do everything. You can only do so much. You can be the leader and the driver force overall um, and implement your, your methods and your, your plan and your identity. But you need to get some good people on the ground that are specialists at what they do that understand. Yeah that vision um, and, and ultimately trust them to go and do it and implement it. And again, that, that probably is bringing, brought us as an England team um, and myself as a coach, the biggest successes I've had. So self-awareness, linking with the support network. Um, and then probably the second key role for me is just around communication um, and being clear and concise with communication and having real good clarity on what you're saying. Um, again, without kind of going into specific situations across my, my career, I've come up against 
gents that are, are twice my age, um, life experience, double what I've got. Um, and because of that, they find it a challenge to work with that younger coach that's trying to implement certain standards and behaviours and expectations, um, which, which I completely get. So it's around how do you manage that relationship? How do you build that up that, you know what, you might not always see eye to eye, eye, to eye but within a team environment, you need to respect one another. You need to have that, that understanding of one another. And that, for me, comes through clear communication. This is what I want here. This is what that looks like there. And if you're not willing to do this, this, and this, this is the outcome. Um, and then it's up to you how, how you want to do that as, as a player if I was to present that forward to them. So, um, and again, that's with the wider staff and teams, the, the level of communication. And probably open and honest communication linked to that, getting people to to be open and honest about how they feel. If they're unhappy about something, tell us you're unhappy. If you, if you really like something, tell us that you like something. If you get an idea, share it. Um, and I know that sounds quite simple, but within a team environment at a national level, that, that's really tricky to do. Because if the coach turns around and says, right, we're doing this today, gents, and the team don't like it, then it's quite hard to come up to the coach and say, nah, I'm not having that, I don't like that. But the environment we have created is actually to go, no, we want you to tell us if we don't like it. Ultimately, if a lad turns around to us or a player turns around to us and says, uh, Owen, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to train for the next six months ahead of the Euros, I'll go, I'm really sorry, that isn't an option you need to. But yeah. if somebody turns around and says, you know what, um, can we think about maybe doing this in a slightly different way or that in a slightly different way? Absolutely. Absolutely. The programme's as much the players' programme as it is mine, as it is the wider staffing team. It's, it's a real togetherness approach, but that open and honest level of communication for me is imperative to, to achieve, achieve togetherness because if you don't get that, then you'll always have conversations going on behind the scenes in the background that, that really kind of break away um, and, and probably break that sense of togetherness. And again, without uh, going on about the, the two, two main teams in Glasgow, I'm sure most people already hear about them, but, but if you look at Steven Gerrard and what he's doing at Rangers, um, probably most people will slate me as a Celtic fan, but I, I've got enormous, enormous um, thoughts for Steven Gerrard in terms of what he's done at the club and how he approaches it. I listened to a podcast that was on uh, the High Performance podcast not yeah. so long ago and to hear how, how he was trying to implement things and what he was doing and actually how he's aware that he isn't there as a top coach in the world. He's still got so much progress and development to do but you look at again he spoke about his wider staffing team and some of the things that he implements where he's non-negotiable values and everything in addition to that you, it's not a surprise to see what he's doing at the moment and where he is at the moment because he's got that clear outline plan of what he's looking to achieve and anybody for me within sport, business or any other sector that's got uh, that approach to things I, I kind of tip my hat to them and if they actually go and deliver on it as well then then even more so so yeah probably those main rules are clear and open communication um, and then as well as self-awareness well wider support network are probably the keys for me I think there's a lot of takeaways in there that was an absolute fantastic in-depth answer for that question there and I really liked the bit about the about self-awareness because it's almost like showing your like accepting your vulnerabilities because a lot of people are maybe too proud to do that and they feel afraid to ask for support or help and then that's where things can fall flat in their face. But if you've got that openness and you, you're not afraid of your vulnerabilities and you've got that self-awareness, then you can go and seek that help, seek that support and maybe give it to someone, like you said, that's got a bit more experience. It's like the podcast, Clark. I do all the editing because you're hopeless at it and, <laughs> and you do all the communicating and reaching out to the guests and not the planning because I'm not so good at that. That's it, it's a team effort, but isn't it? That, aye, that's it. It's just, aye, it's almost playing each individual's strength to, to bring together a, a collective, obviously, yeah. performance and improvement within your team. And I, I, think, I think on that as well, when I, when I look back at my kind of journey on it, probably 19, 20 years old, I wasn't very self-aware. I thought, I've got the enthusiasm, I've got a bit of personality to some degree, I can get buy-in from players, I know I can coach, I know I can deliver, and that's going to be enough to make the team European champions. And, and although in 2017, with that approach, we got very, very close, um, probably then reflecting on that and realising there's so much more that can be done on a wider scale to develop this programme, which we've now got. We've got two, uh, two analysis that look at uh, the players' performance and linking it to the smart targets, look at opposition analysis, look at our uh, team themes that we're implementing, doing analysis sessions on their performance psychology, sports science, medical support staff, media. I could go on all day, but we'll get these uh, departments in place that have got their own plans and their own approach to support the wider programme that we never had back in 2017, 2016 when I first started. And the reason for that is that I wasn't very self-aware. I thought I could almost take on the world. But I think when you do start to reflect and understand where you're at, then things actually start to move a lot quicker and you can make a much greater impact. 
Yeah, I think it's just accepting it, isn't it? Accepting what you're good at and accepting what maybe you're not so good at. And it's just having the, the honesty and courage just to, to almost admit it as well. And then and, and reflect on it, which can sometimes be a hard thing for people to do, to admit those vulnerabilities. But no, I really like that. Some good points in there about your support network, um, clear and concise communication and being open and honest with your, your players and having that sort of bond. And again, it's a lot of links into teaching as well, things that we need to consider when we're, when we're teaching PE. So it's really good, some, some real good links in there. Um, sure, it'd be good to get your thoughts on this one. In terms of what Lewis was saying there, um, trying not to do everything. But if you're working with different departments um, within the team that's going to contribute towards that team spirit, how important is it that you still know the role of the other jobs and try and take an interest in it? How do you balance that um, rather than distancing yourself from it, if you know what I mean? Yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm a very, uh, very vocal coach at the best of times and just to give a little bit of a kind of an example of it is one of the things that I was always really big in doing was being in the middle. So I'd be the loudest voice, I would be enthusiastic, I would make the place kind of almost light ups, maybe an exaggeration, I don't think that I highlight myself, but I can get a session going, I can get people enthused and, and buzzing off the back of the session. And However, what I was actually doing with that was great. But the players weren't communicating effectively because it was always my voice that was the loudest. Whenever we went to an international game, then it would be my voice that was the loudest. It was like playing a game of, game of play, uh, playing FIFA. I would be sitting on the sidelines like, you left, you right, you up there, you there. And, and I'd move people about physically. And again, I, I, I like to think I get the game, so I'd get outcomes from it. But actually, when you go in front of playing in front of 42,000, nobody can hear a word I'm saying. How effective is that? It's, it's absolutely redundant. So, again, when, when we look at the September this year, we could potentially face Poland in front of 25,000 fans. Um, and and that will be a very similar experience where they, they won't be able to hear a word that I'm saying. So, a lot of the things that we've done is around me actually taking a step back from that. So, despite taking a step back from the coaching and, and watching, and I, I do need to pretty much just stand there and go, don't say anything, don't say anything, just watch. And I've, I've coached myself to do that. I can still go and do the other side of it, but I'm kind of reflecting watching a lot more because when I'm doing that, I'm realising what areas we can prove as a team because I'm actually seeing it rather than just being in the middle. So taking that step back and, and looking at it from an outside in, uh, but then linking that to how I need to know the other roles and not distance myself too heavily from it. I still need to make sure that that session is the level of intensity that I would do it at. So yeah. what assistant manager um, and the wider coaching team to make sure that's implemented um, across the other uh, departments. Again, it's, it's really challenging because some of the areas I've had to go away and, and, and educate myself on around sports science, um, around performance analysis, around uh, psychology analysis, or, um, psychology performance, sorry, all those areas are, are areas that I wasn't really privy to probably about two or three years ago. Um, so I've had to go away and do my research, learn. And again, goes back to my last point about being open and honest. I've had to turn around to the different staff members who look at probably me as a leader and say, you know what, I don't really understand that. Can you explain it to me? Or can you yeah. give me a little bit more information on this, this and this? And then once you gain that information, you can use it to how you want to shape it with that department. Um, so a lot of what we do is kind of focusing, particularly from a staffing side, is improving that multidisciplinary approach where the departments are working together. Um, and if, you know what, if a uh, performance psychologist having a one-to-one -one with a player who's very, very anxious about playing out from the back, how can we link that in with analysis so they're actually looking at clips supporting them and then how can that link in with the coaching staff so the coaching staff are aware of it and can support that player when they are in possession to, to almost take that anxiety away and give them that confidence that they need. So, um, it's yeah, it's a real kind of holistic approach um, to, to taking that step back, looking at the overall programme and almost plugging the holes that need to be plugged to make sure that everybody's working together. Um, and the way that I always look at it now is a kind of analogy that somebody gave me a long time ago that there was a, there was a ball with a lot of holes in it and the water's seeping out the holes and you need all your staff members kind of keeping the keeping their fingers in the hole so the water doesn't spill out. My mm. job there to tell people where to put their fingers so that the, the water doesn't come out the ball. The moment that somebody takes their finger off, that's when I step in and mm. I, I make my place in that until I can get somebody else in to do that. Um, and it's, it's kind of something that's always stuck with me that actually I can step in, I can be in the mix and I can, I can show people how I can do that as much as anyone else, but at the same time, I can do it probably in the level of quality somebody else can. So um, it's more around guiding people and supporting the wider, wider network. Yeah, I think you made a good point there. Like, as long as you have an awareness of it, you maybe kind of do it as good as them, but you've got that oversight and that you create that through your weekly meetings as well. I would imagine as well with your staff or daily meetings, 
Um, I, was, I was listening to Gerard on the Robbie Fowler podcast. You might like to listen to that as well. I know you, you think highly of him. Um, so do I, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's done a great job this year. But, um, uh, so he was talking about, uh, he does his sessions. Like he stepped, doesn't, doesn't want him leading everything because the players are uh, bored by his voice. So he steps in when it really has to and he goes over the shape. Or he talks about the phases um, and then the, the players know like, I, I, I really need to listen here. This is a big important bit for the weekend. Um, so that was a good bit of advice that I took from that as well. Um, so, yeah, all good. All good stuff. Right, Owen, moving on to the kind of coaching side of things then. And you kind of alluded to it there a wee bit. So in your opinion, what is the best way to deliver a high-quality coaching session to a group of players? Because I'm sure there are many overlaps, obviously, to what makes a great teaching lesson. We've already kind of um, connected a few of the dots in, in a previous answer. So... What are your kind of maybe your non-negotiables when delivering a high-quality coaching session? I think around the coaching session, you need, to, you need to plan it and you need to be prepared for it. Uh, now, I was probably once upon a time I would pride myself and being able to go and deliver a, a session just off the top of my head, and and I would I could, I could go out there and you could give me ten minutes notice and you could tell me what equipment I've got, how long I've got, and I would deliver a session that everybody loves and everybody enjoys being a part of. And, and everybody's buzzing coming off the back of it. My issue when I was doing that is the actual football outcomes weren't being met, um, as well as what they could have. The individual targeted approach of going back to what you guys were saying is how do you do that within a wider team? Well, ultimately, you've got your wider team topic, but then you're going to bullseye a number of players, that you, your key players that you want to see improvements from within that session. Now, we all know that might not be everybody specifically, uh, but you'll have three, four, five players that you go, you know what, I want this outcome from them, them and them off the back of that session. So for me, going back to the planning, when, when I wasn't planning, I wasn't getting those desired outcomes. So for me, I'm, I'm a non-negotiable moving forward for since probably two or three years ago is around really planning in depth around that session, what it looks like, what the outcomes of it, what the progressions are, what the regressions of it are, um, which again is, is pretty standard in any environment, but I think everybody would be uh, probably telling a fib or two along the way, whether it's PE teachers or whether it's, it's football coaches or any other environment, that sometimes you just almost feel like you don't have the time um, to, to go away and do your planning and do your preparation, so you'll just go out and kind of wing it. And, and, and you're good enough to wing it, so it's okay getting away with it. Uh, but it's something that I've kind of had to self-teach myself around, actually, that that isn't good enough. That's, that's not an expectation. I wouldn't expect the players to come out and wing the, the kind of prehab, or I wouldn't expect them to come and wing, wing their session, not preparing 24 hours before it. So why should they expect that of me, particularly at an international level? So, um, yeah, session planning and actually in-depth outcomes alongside that is key. And whether you get those outcomes or not are, Again, in a way, it's a little bit irrelevant. Just knowing that you've put the plans in place to go out there and do the best possible job you can is, yeah. is the key behind that. Um, so that, that would be one certain thing from it. Um, trying to improve people's interpersonal confidence, I think, is another one. Um, and again, regardless of what environment you're in, whether you're coaching within the Premier League or whether you're coaching the England Amputee football team or anything in between, if, if players or individuals don't feel confident, then you're not going to get the best out of them. So you need to create an environment that people feel uh, safe, that people feel that they can learn, um, but more importantly, on top of all of that, they, they feel like they can be themselves and they can, and the links to the safety, they can, they can be confident, they can grow in confidence. Now, even within the England team, we've got a range of different personalities, some real big characters and some real, real quiet young players. And actually, we've worked, particularly over the last uh, year, when we've been able to train, uh, we've worked closely with those uh, bigger personalities and how can they support the, the, the younger, quieter players and how can we, they help grow their confidence. Now, that's something that we've worked on for a year and to see the younger players now telling a more experienced player when they've done something wrong and having a pop at them is quite, is quite something special because you can tell the older experienced player in the moment just wants to bite their head off but then in reflection, they're pretty proud of them going, actually, they've just told me told me off or they've made their own decision or whatever it may be. And again, when you're looking at those effective communication lines, going back to one of the first things I said tonight, is if the younger players are able to do that, then it, and the older players and everybody in between can communicate effectively and professionally, you're going to get a better team giving you better outcomes and better quality on the pitch. Um, so yeah, so interpersonal confidence, planning, preparation, um, and again, from a player's aspect, you need you need to be enthusiastic about what you're doing. You want you need to want to be there. You need to be 
ready to get to work and, and put everything you need to put into it. If you're coming with a, a lacklustre attitude or you can't really be bothered or you're not up for it, then, then it's probably not the right environment for, for you and, and my environment. If, you, if you're coming, you're, you're giving me everything and you're giving me a real positive attitude while we're there and, and the wider staff and myself do the exact same for the players. Um, so positive attitude, enthusiasm, uh, clear communication, helping support and a personal confidence and then from a coach's side, the planning and preparation for it are, are the keys for me. And um, see what you mentioned about interpersonal confidence, about how the, the younger players can kind of learn from the more experienced players you hear. Like Cy Ferry and all that, although their podcast is just absolute, uh, just a joke, like it's a banter, like constant, it's hilarious, some of the part on that, isn't it? Like, but they speak, they speak a lot about that, about their experiences, like coming up through Celtic and everything, and how, how that helped them a lot as well. So you actually, you, you hear quite a lot about that. So it's obviously quite a, a, a good tactic to, to develop those sort of skills as well. 100%. I think the, the thing that probably from when those guys played to, to now is society has changed a little bit. Um, mm. So what you would maybe do as a coach to speak to a younger player nowadays, and I'm not saying for all, everybody is completely different and unique to their approach, but, but it might not be as successful. The outcome you get if you go and give uh, a, a young kid a, a, the hairdryer treatment, for example. Yeah. Um, equally, the, the arm around the shoulder might be not what they need as well. They might need that something in between so everybody's different and unique to their approach and it's the same with the older pros or your more experienced ones having a bit of banter or having a kind of joke at their expense for some people who work and they love that because it gets yeah. involved in it for others it will really push them away and they won't know how to deal with that and again that's not to say that one's right and one's wrong it's just different people and it's different ways of approaching people so again we've tried to uh, raise our players awareness understanding one another better understanding who likes what and, and when to do what with certain people and again the more you understand one another the, the better it comes you're going to get from them Yeah I was going to say see, see just off the back of that own how, like, how would you a lot of stuff that we speak about in the podcast is like you need to develop deep like subject knowledge of your of your of PE. You need to go deep into the kind of knowledge. So how how would you achieve that for football in terms of tactics and um, that sort of side of it? How would how do you go about that? Do you watch a lot of football and study it or? Yeah, I mean, through I'm currently doing my A license at the moment, which is great because it's given me more of a, a probably up to date. Um, knowledge of the current trends of the game, the current tactics of the game, things and the, the way the kind of top coaches are looking at it. Um, but but for me again it's it's going out and being being aware of, of who the best people are at what they do and try to access and tap into that knowledge um, and tap into their experience. Uh, so again, I, I speak to a lot of coaches outside of my role within the, the national team. Obviously, I'm a, a football agent, so I work closely with those four or five coaches I actually look after that are working at a professional level. I tap into their knowledge. I tap into um, thoughts of my father's been involved in the game for a long, long time. So I tap into his knowledge, his wide network of, of coaches without kind of name dropping. I've, I've spoken the last couple of weeks to some international managers uh, that, have, that have worked at the top level, people that have won major tournaments, coaches, and and got a better understanding about what's their experience been, what, what's their non-negotiables, what do they think is pivotal to success. And I think the, the key behind all of that for me is actually you're your own person. So you take a little bit of everything that you like and you shape that according to you. And um, I say, I'm going to be the next Steven Gerrard or I'm going to be the next Sir Alec Ferguson, you're going to be the next own coil, do you know what I mean? Because you're your own person, so take whatever you like and whatever you think relevant and apply that in your own way. Um, and then coming back to the kind of tactics and trends of the game and having a, a knowledge of that. I do watch a lot of football, um, obviously I tap into those knowledge base from those with better experience and me and better knowledge than me as well. Um, I try to upskill myself through CPD uh, opportunities as and when they arise, um, again, the relevant areas. Um, and just through conversation with specialists within probably not always football as well, not always areas that we think are, are relevant because football, as much as the tactical side of the game, is the kind of cool part when you've got your analysis and you've got Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville in the studio drawing little pictures and putting loads of different things on it. So it's wonderful in it, but when you actually look at the crooks of it, the, the best managers, your, your Klops, your Guardiola's and everybody else in between, they probably get it right on a, on a human level, first and foremost. And then all that stuff falls out the back of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Kind of person first, and then then the player second. Yeah. Um. So moving kind of on uh, to the last sort of question of the main section of the podcast. Moving forward, kind of what's your what's your vision and hopes for the future in terms of coaching and, and management? 
I would love to, to one day work at the top level um, in whatever capacity that be, may be, whether it's a, a coach, an assistant manager, a head coach, sporting director, or anything in between, really. Um, I've got a passion for the game, I always have. I've always been brought up around football, like many people um, in, in Glasgow and the wider surrounding areas when, when you grow up, football's all you really kind of involved in. Um, and, and that's been no different for myself. So uh, I'm not really good at too much yet outside of football um, so that's where uh, that's where I pride myself on in, in, in the game and, and I've got a lot of distance to, to travel in terms of a lot of improvements to do uh, but the, the kind of course I'm on at the moment is to continue working with the England team and uh, marrying that up nicely with dealing with contractual negotiations working with um, chief executives working with chairman um, or chairwomen of clubs uh, speaking with scout networks and getting that range of knowledge around that as well the regulations and um, within the, the Football League, within the Premier League, those side of things that, again, many people probably wouldn't uh, think too much about and actually marrying those both, the coaching and leadership side, with that knowledge base on a, a more in-depth detail level and, and taking that forward into whatever yeah, level of professional game I can access. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do well if you continue um, your attitude and your enthusiasm. I'm sure you'll, you will achieve what, what, what you want to do in the end. Um, so thanks for uh, sharing your your leadership experiences over the last few years. It was fascinating to, to hear it from that sort of angle of the amputee football team and um, what you've learned along along the way. So I'm sure that'll be really powerful for the listeners um, who tune in. So thanks again. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jens. Right, final part before we let you go and to enjoy the rest of your evening, right? We've got a wee quick fire round of three questions that we ask all the guests just for a wee bit of fun at the end of the podcast. Nice. So we'll fire on nice and quickly. If you could have a billboard anywhere, what would it say on it? Uh, join the journey. So my, my slogan for CO2 Sports Management, my, uh, my company, my agency company, uh, my slogan is join the journey. Join the um, journey. That, that's certainly what I would have probably. Either that or life's a pitch, one of the two. Life's a pitch? Yeah. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know, but as for you, you're constantly on it. <laughs> right. Which people or books have had the, uh, the biggest influence on your life? Uh, people, there's, there's a gentleman um, that's a performance psychologist, Tim Patton, um, and I actually re- really struggle reading, um, which I know is probably the case for, for a lot of people in different ways. So he's introduced me to a range of podcasts um, that, that I listen to frequently, and I take myself out on a walk every day. I used to get out of the office and I put a podcast on, and when the podcast's on, I just take notes on my phone. Um, so on my iPhone here, I've probably got about 400 notes of different podcasts that I've listened to from different leaders from different uh, backgrounds. I've literally just taken notes on things that I think are relevant to me. So uh, Tim certainly has, has really kind of helped shape my career and, and give me a lot of the things that I'm speaking about tonight. Um, in, in more detail and more knowledge of it. Um, my, my father obviously involved in the professional game and, and learned a lot through him and, and very, very grateful for his uh, opportunity that he's given me from time to time as well and going and experiencing different things uh, within the, the management um, and the, the coaching side of the game. So they would certainly be two. Uh, my, my family generally I'm very, very close to mum as well. So um, certainly those individuals have, have helped shape my career. Brilliant. Uh, number three then, what advice would you give to a young player who's looking to excel within their sport? Um, I think going to immerse yourself into it and, and go and work with, with experts in the area and, and don't be afraid to try and get in contact with them and trying to, to speak to them. Now, there's probably one of the things that I've not alluded to tonight, which is I've had loads of little setbacks like everybody has and it's not a kind of... Um, a, a sad story by any sorts, but but you'll get people that won't respond to you. You'll get people that will blank your messages and blank your calls, and there's all those sorts of things that will happen frequently that we've all experienced in different ways. And it's almost it's a little you can take it as a little bit of a setback that it's not nice that people are ignoring you X, Y, and Z. But it's, at the end of the day, it is what it is. I think just go and immerse yourself into asking questions from people that you want to learn from, and if they're going to give you the time of day to learn from them, then great. And if they don't, then then move on and find somebody else who will, because there's that many people out there that will have those those knowledge base and experiences that you can you can benefit and improve from and go and really tap into them and then once you tap into them and once you've got that knowledge that they're sharing with you think about how you how you implement it within your own uh, career and your own journey and uh, don't just take it and sit on it and, and leave it in the notes and the iphone actually take it off that page and, and look to see how you can implement it yourself 
inspiration's one thing, isn't it? It's just about taking those first steps and actually taking action on it. So um, I think that's a great point there. And I think that rounds us off absolutely brilliantly with this episode of the podcast on. So it was an absolute pleasure to have you on, mate. And it was um, a real insight picking your brains there and hearing your journey. So thanks very much for giving up your time tonight and coming on to share your experience with us. Absolute pleasure, gents. Thanks for all the support. Nice to meet you, Owen. Uh, thanks again. Lovely to meet you, gents. Thanks again for everything. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you enjoy the, the league parade when it comes around anyway. Oh, That brings us to the end of another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. Mr. Burrow, you can lead us off with tonight's key takeaway message from the guest, Owen Coyle. Yeah, so my key takeaway message would be there was a lot in there, and I'm going to uh, study it and listen back and try and learn some stuff for, uh, from my own leadership journey. A lot of leadership lessons in there, and spoke about delegating, so that would be mine. Um, that of delegating and making sure he's got an oversight of how the sportsman, uh, the sports psychology department works, how the nutrition side works, and obviously that the analysis side. So he has to take an interest in all of them, um, but he also knows and trusts his colleagues enough to deliver the objectives for the team. Um, but he's got that. Ability to stand back when it's the right time, but obviously um, get involved when he thinks he needs to, to step in. So that's a good uh, lesson to, to take and a good strategy, I think, for, for leadership. And um, it's even the very best for the team. It's always about the team. And I uh, spoke a lot about networking as well, being self aware um, and knowing that sometimes you lack skill in certain areas and being open and upfront with that. And you can't do everything yourself. So, uh, what would be your key takeaway message? Yeah, I and just kind of to echo what you said, but I thought I just felt really inspired after coming uh, coming off the back of that podcast there, just with Owen being that wee bit younger than us as well, and how passionate he is, and how well he's done at such an early age in his career. I thought it was absolutely superb um, to listen and hear his journey so far. So um, I really enjoyed that side of things as well. But no, just kind of to echo what you said, I liked his answer when we spoke about his the kind of top qualities that's seen him overcome the, the kind of top challenges so far in his career. Um, and he, and he spoke about having that support network round about you and I think that's so important in any any job that you're going to do and especially something that you're new in I think having a, a really strong support network round about you um, is is key and having that level of self-awareness to to show or to admit where you are, your vulnerabilities lie so that you can become better at what it is you're doing or seek support from that specialist in, in that area so I thought that was a really good point that he, he kind of spoke about and that doesn't just apply to, to coaching it applies to teaching it applies to anything any area in your life that you want to get better at um, and he made some other really good points um, just about having that kind of clear and concise open and honest com- communication with his players again a lot of links into teaching um, so I kind of connected the dots there with that and that's kind of my would probably be my main key takeaway messages from from tonight's episode. There was um, some loads of good nuggets of information in there. Absolutely, can't wait to listen to it back. So, thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, hopefully, you enjoyed the, uh, this episode of Obo. Is that that's, that's what we're getting called now, isn't it? It's trending on Twitter. <laughs> you were saying. I think. Yeah, yeah. I. Well, <laughs> I think you started it, but. <laughs> I restarted it. I started it with small, uh, lowercase now. Made it, uh, uh, <laughs> I think it, I th- caps lock. I know. I think we. Um, I think it was a, a mistake uh, creating a podcast with such a long name. You just can't be bothered taking that in. <laughs> no, I have to show it some way. So or did you that. did did you just do that so you could have a cool catchy abbreviation like that? Was that your thinking? Was that your long term plan? That was my. Yeah, hi. Basically, that's, it has to have that the sustainability to it. <laughs> Hopefully you enjoyed that episode as much as we did and hopefully you're trying to, what we're trying to do is learn from different industries and different um, jobs and try to make the teaching side of things better and within the profession. So it's helping us, so hopefully it's helping you and take care.